The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We need to take advantage of that. So what the Bible says about Islam, those who follow the religion of Islam are called Muslims, historically, or Muslims, spelled a lot of different ways, followers of Muhammad, believers in Allah. didn't surprise me that this was a topic of interest by our own saints as they were giving me feedback on topics of interest because of the events in 9-11 in 2001 that rocked America and every one of the terrorists in those airplanes professed to be a part of the religion of Islam and did their dastardly murderous deeds in the name of Allah, actually. And so ever since 2001, 9-11, many Americans have had a keen interest in studying what this religion of Islam was all about. Frankly, there was a lot of ignorance about Islam. And it's also makes sense that we would look at this and that you had an interest in it because Islam, in terms of the religions of the world, it is the largest religion in the world in terms of adherence and those who profess to believe in it. As a matter of fact, they believe somewhere at 1.3 billion people claim to be adherents of Islam, which makes it one in every five people on planet Earth is a Muslim, which dwarfs every other religion. I don't care what it is, whether it's Protestant Christianity, Catholicism, Hinduism, and there on down. It is by far the most dominant religion in terms of a world force and just sheer numbers and influence. So it warrants some examination in light of Scripture. I will never forget the week after 9-11. News reports 24-7. But immediately after uh, September 17th, Six days after the terrorist attacks in New York, President Bush at the time spoke at the D.C. Islamic Center, Washington, D.C., and in an effort to mediate peace in America's religiously pluralistic matrix, the president said this, quote, These acts of violence violate the fundamental tenets of the Islamic faith. The face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace, or a peaceful religion. One week later, September 24th, Pope John Paul II spoke similar sentiments in a formal proclamation that he made in Kazakhstan and said, I wish, quote, I wish to reaffirm the Catholic Church's respect for Islam, end quote because Islam was a religion of peace. Well, this went on for weeks. I could not believe what I was hearing. The reason I couldn't believe what I was hearing is because I started formally teaching on Islam in 1993 and had been teaching on it for many years. Five years ago, I taught a 12-week series on Islam. Every Sunday night, 12 weeks, an hour at a time. I've been studying it thoroughly for years. All of my studies of what I looked at, history, current events, Islamic doctrine, reading the Quran, which I have done, and what the Bible has to say, Islam was anything but peace in terms of a formal religion. I am not talking about maybe your neighbor who's kind of a quasi-nominal Muslim professing Americanized person whose great-grandparents maybe believed in the religion of Islam. I'm not talking about that. 
I'm talking about the formal religion, the actual Quran, what it teaches, what Muhammad taught, what he lived for, how he lived his life, what he proclaimed, what formal spokespersons of the legitimate religion of Islam believe and preach today all over the world. The imams in their mosques. I'm not talking about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Americanized, watered-down version of something that doesn't even resemble true Islam. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about true Islam representing the Quran and Muhammad himself. It is not a religion of peace. That's what I wanted to shout out to the world in this flurry of madness that came. And, you know, these people had good intentions. It wasn't just the Pope and President Bush. Oprah had a special, and her main thesis was, Islam is peace. I'm saying, no, it's not. And on and on it went. So then a flurry of books came out for the last three, five years, people giving their opinion about Islam and one that reigns supreme in America and on the news and in the media is that Islam is a religion of peace. And I would say, no, it is not. And the Pope said, I re we want to reiterate formally our respect for Islam. And I would say, as a pastor, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't respect Islam. I don't respect any false religion. I respect people. I respect every human being made in the image of God. Because Jesus came to save every human being made in the image of God, regardless of your gender, race, background, whatever. He came to seek and to save sinners. And he's been saving people out of false religions ever since he came. And Islam is one of those religions that Jesus came to save sinners from. So that's kind of the main overarching theme that I want to reiterate. And I'm not being mean, I'm just being honest here. And my goal is to examine the Scriptures. That's what Scripture mandates that we as Christians do. 1 Thessalonians 5 exhorts Christians, examine everything carefully from a spiritual and biblical point of view, from God's point of view. Examine everything carefully. So everything is subject to God's assessment from a biblical point of view, and Islam is no exception. So I have examined it carefully for, wow, many years. And I just want to distill it all down and just share a few Key highlights for you, and there is further reading recommended at the end of the sermon. Many great books. There's one book sitting on the table that I recommend about on the GBF book table about Islam. At First Thessalonians 5, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good or true, said Paul. Abstain from every form of evil. And false religious teaching is evil. Paul calls it doctrines of demons. It is demonically inspired, he said in the book of Timothy. Really? Jesus said in Matthew 23 that when you have a false religion or a false religious teacher, they're leading people down the road to hell. Those are Jesus' words. And we want them to be saved from that. With the Gospel, with the knowledge of who Jesus Christ truly is. So let's go ahead and try to do that. I just came up with seven points. Try to summarize. Let's look at those. I'm just kind of an, Again, this is just a survey and overview of some, some of the main points about Islam. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, before we do, look in your Bible at Genesis chapter 2. Quick little Bible background. Now, Islam, when examining it from a Christian point of view, it is very different than if we were to examine and scrutinize Mormonism or the Moonies. Because when you start talking about Islam, its history, the Quran, its teaching, its founder, Muhammad, his descendants, his legacy, his origin, where he came from, we are catapulted and taken back directly into the land of the Bible. 
because the origin and the headquarters of Islam, the Muslim faith, is in Bible lands. Saudi Arabia and all those surrounding nations, 23 nations surrounding Israel today that are Islamic nations. So we're in the land of the Bible when we're talking about Islam and its founder. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, when God created everything, He created uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Where was the Garden of Eden? Chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden, that's the Garden of Eden. Where? Toward the east in Eden. Toward the east. Always in the Bible, when giving directions, everything is giving directions from the perspective of the land of Israel. To the east. That's where the Arab nations are today. To the east. That's where Babylon is. To the east was where the Garden of Eden was. To the east was Saudi Arabia. The east. There God planted uh, Adam in that garden. There were four rivers flowing out of it. Verse 10. Two of those rivers are named specifically in verse 14 and 15. And the name of the third river in the Garden of Eden was called the Tigris River. Exists today. What was the other river? Flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Tigris-Euphrates River. Still exists today. We know exactly where that is. That is a historical, unquestionable landmark. This is Babylon. This is where Saddam Hussein had his headquarters. This is where Nebuchadnezzar was. This is uh, modern-day Iraq and Iran. That's where we are. And then flip to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18. This is a prophecy about the future. Revelation 18 has not happened yet. It is talking about the future just before Christ comes. It is talking about the worldwide tribulation that will be coming upon the earth literally. This is literal events. It hasn't happened yet. This is in the future. This is how world history is going to culminate and end. Where will world history culminate and end? Well, Genesis 2 told us that world history began in the east. It began the Garden of Eden. It began in Babylon. It began where modern-day Iraq is. That's where world history began. That's where biblical history continues. And where world history is going to end and culminate is in the exact same place. According to Revelation, especially look at chapter 18, verse 2, I cried out, uh, he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon is mentioned several times throughout this chapter. Along with Babylon, verse 3, are all these nations. Verse 9, all these kings who are in cahoots with Babylon at the time. This is the exact same place. This is the land of Iraq that we know as today. And by the way, the 23 surrounding nations in all these areas today are Muslim nations. The land is dominated by the religion of Islam. So when we're dealing with Islam, we are dealing with biblical geography, biblical history. That's why it's so significant. Now, before we get to our seven points, uh, one more thing I want to highlight. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 12, the most important chapter in Genesis. Because in Genesis 12, God called Abraham. Abraham lived basically in Iraq, Ur of the Chaldees. That's where that area where he lived. He was a pagan. He worshipped idols. He didn't know God. At 75 years of age, God called him and saved him and commissioned him with a special mission unparalleled. And it's given in Genesis 12. And here's what God said to Abram before he became Abraham and gave him this Abrahamic covenant or to promise. The Lord, that is God, that is Yahweh, that is the Trinity, that is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit spoke to Abram. 2000 B.C., by the way. This is 4,000 years ago. 
What did he tell Abram, the pagan idol worshiper, living where Saddam Hussein lived? Go forth from your country. Leave this country. Leave your relatives, the idol worshipers. I'm, I'm going to save you. Leave your father's house to the land which I will show you, the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, the land of promise. The land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation. There it is, Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. What do you need to become a great nation? Well, you need descendants, right? You need people. You need laws. You need governance. That was his promise day. I am going to make you a great nation. What great nation did that become? That became the nation of Israel, the Jews. That's what the whole story of the Old Testament and the New Testament is all about. The nation of Israel. I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you, Abraham. I will bless your nation. I will make your name great. And so you, you shall be a blessing. And here it is, verse 3. This still applies to us today. I will bless those who bless you. That has been true all throughout history. That has been true for 4,000 years. If you want to be on God's side as a person or as a nation, then hopefully you're on the side of Abraham. Because God said, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Abraham was the father of the Jews. He is the father of the Jews. This promise still stands. And in you, Abraham, and from your loins, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How? By the coming of the Messiah. Jesus Christ came from the loins of Abraham. He was a blessing as the Savior of the world. And God still has a future for the nation of Israel. And that truth still reigns true. Those who bless Abraham and his descendants, the Jews in Israel and Jesus, shall be blessed. Those who curse shall be cursed by God themselves. Then look at Genesis 16. Sam read that earlier. I just want to highlight two verses. So Abraham is 75. God makes this promise about age 86. Ten years go by and you're thinking, okay, God, you're going to turn me into a nation, so I need descendants. We haven't even had any children yet. I'm 86. I'm getting old. I need kids. So Abraham took this matter into his own hands. Instead of having a child through Sarah, the, the woman of promise, he took Hagar and had a son through Hagar. She was an Egyptian. She was not the woman that God wanted Abraham to give the promise through. So it was an illegitimate relationship. They had a son. His name was Ishmael. God said He was going to bless Ishmael anyway. And He was going to turn Ishmael into a mighty nation and great peoples. And that has been true ever since. And that's where Muhammad came from. He comes from the loins of Ishmael. And in verse 16, again, I want to read it. Here is the promise that God gave regarding Ishmael, what he was like. God was going to bless him, but verse 12 says, Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. Wow. Tells you about his character, his personality, his temperament. He will be wild. He will be a wild man. His hand will be against everyone. He will be aggressive. He will be divisive. He will be a fighter. And that's what the descendants of Ishmael have been ever since now for 4,000 years. He will live to the east of all of his brothers. Some of his brothers are the Jews. If you look at a map today, to the east of Israel, you got about 20 Islamic nations. They hate Israel. They hate the Jews. Verse seven, chapter 17, verse 20. As for Ishmael, God said, I will bless him exceedingly. I'm going to make him a great nation. God has done that for 4,000 years. And then finally in verse uh Chapter 23, the last statement made, or 25, another statement made about Ishmael. It gives the descendants of Ishmael, uh, God, they turned into 12 tribes all over the place. Verse 18 of chapter 25 says, They settled in Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt. 
as one who goes towards Assyria and he settled in defiance of all of his relatives. A fighter. It was in his blood. It hasn't changed since. Ishmael and the Jews, God said there will never be peace. They will be at each other's throat perpetually and forevermore. And that has been true for 4,000 years today and it is true today. And no president of the United States or president of anybody is going to get the Jews and the Arab peoples, especially those who are Islamic, to shake hands and legitimately sign a peace treaty. It ain't going to happen. The only peace will be silence to reload in the midst of the war. That's what God's Word has to say. So let's go ahead. That's the biblical background. Let's go ahead and look at just seven things I want to highlight about Islam and the nature of it. Uh, Islam was started at the, it, with the life of Muhammad who came five, almost 600 years after Jesus was born. Muhammad came around. He was somewhat ignorant and uneducated, lived in Saudi Arabia, and was taught here and there as he worked on different caravans, trading from different people from all over the world. He was influenced by heretical Jews and heretical Christians, among other kinds of polytheistic religion. And he basically came up with his own eclectic, messed up, perverted religion that was influenced by a lot of different things, including the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it was a hodgepodge, but it was false religion. And that's the religion that he came up with in about 600 A.D. He called himself a prophet. He called himself an apostle. He was self-appointed as an apostle and a prophet. Then he ended up supposedly writing Scripture from God whom he called Allah. And a lot of people like to say that, well, Allah is just another name for God. No, it's not. I like what one pastor said who's honest and said, no, Allah is not another name for God. Allah is another name for Satan. There's a big difference. But supposedly, over the course of 25 years, in a cave, in fits of convulsion, half out of his mind, Muhammad claims that he received divine revelations from an angel of light. That should be a warning for a Christian because in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said that Satan appears as an angel of light. That's the same testimony that Joseph Smith had when he came up with his Bible and his religion. Galatians 1, 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul said from God, if we come to you or if an angel of God comes to you with a contrary gospel, let that person be eternally condemned. Galatians 1, 8 9, that's strong, strong language. Because there's nothing worse that can be done than to dilute, pollute, undermine the saving gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its glory and simplicity. That's why this is such a serious issue. But with that, let's go ahead and look at the first point I got on your handout there. And that's number one, that Islam is a totalitarian theocracy. Theocracy has to do with your government, how you rule. Here in America, we call it democracy. Demo, people, crossy, rule, rule of the people. Theocracy, crossy, rule, theo, rule of God. Theocracy. You allow your religion to rule the people politically. That's what Islam does and believes in. As a matter of fact, there are dozens and dozens of Islamic nations, countries. Saudi Arabia is a totalitarian religious theocracy. In Saudi Arabia, the rule of the day is Islamic law, Sharia law. 
the religious people make the rules and enforce the rules. That's theocracy. The rule politically with your religion. That's why it's mandatory that women cannot drive cars. Women cannot go out in public if they're not if they're uncovered. These, this comes from their religion. It is mandated. Yesterday I was driving down Stevens Creek and there's a van next to me and there's what looks like a Muslim woman and she's all covered with her headgear and then on the back of the van uh, it was a, a blatant slight against the nation of Israel and Jews on the bumper sticker. It was offensive. It was unbelievable. It was hateful. And I was thinking, wow, if she was in Saudi Arabia where Islam is the reigning religion, she wouldn't even be able to ride a car or drive a car. And secondly, she wouldn't have freedom of speech. Yet we have that privilege here in America. But, but totalitarian by that, totalitarianism simply is that it's a political system that wants total control of everything. In other words, you don't have any rights as an individual. That's totalitarianism. You've got to do it our way or the highway. Our way or jail. Our way or death many times. That's totalitarianism. So many of these, so Saudi Arabia, Iran, that's been in the news, is a totalitarian religious theocracy of a regime. There is no freedom. You don't have freedom of speech. You don't have freedom of the press. You don't have any liberties. You're told what to do and how to behave. It's an oppressive system. It dominates the world. We in America, we don't, we're clueless of what this is like. We've got just wonderful, blessed freedom from God. It's a gift to be thankful for. But by design, Islam as a religion is totalitarian. As a matter of fact, the word Islam means submit. It means surrender. And for 1,400 years, that's what it's been trying to do. And for 1,400 years, the mantra and the mandate of Islam as a religion is convert or die. Really. I mean, just when I was hearing these statements about religion, uh, Islam is a religion of peace, I'm just like, this is ignorance. This is not deliberate deception on the part of our president. This is just ignorance. Read the history of Muhammad, who was a raiding, marauding, bloodthirsty, killer, thief, murderer. He was. And he records some of it even in the Quran. He spearheaded over 60 little battles during his lifetime. Responsible for the death of many innocent people. Blood on his hands. Proud of it. Jesus never hurt anyone. Jesus never killed anyone. Jesus never physically threatened anyone. Huge difference. Jesus said if you've if you got an enemy, you pray for him. You love him. Huge contrast. These are not two similar religions. I'll never forget about three years ago, an elder here from GBF and me were at a ministry event for children at a local church and one of the elders got up of that other church to all these children and got up and for whatever reason started talking about all the religions of the world and all these and he mentioned islam and it's a very good religion and a great religion but we have a few differences and i'm thinking that's that's sad don't do that let's be honest so islam means submit i got a very good friend that's a pastor in albania been there for almost 20 years he can attest firsthand that Islam is totalitarian, demands submission. By virtue of their teachings and their history and the behavior of Muhammad, it is violent, it is dangerous. I'm not talking about individual Muslim people that you might know. I'm talking about the religion and its doctrine formally. We need to get that in our head. But here, from straight from the Quran, 114 chapters, and I'm just going to say chapter whatever. Here are verses out of the Quran. By the way, uh, the Quran has over a hundred war verses or violent ver verses or bloodthirsty verses. 
As a matter of fact, one out of every three verses in the Quran is a war verse. Here's just a sample. I could have read much more. This is Muhammad. This is Allah. This is the religion of Islam commanding its people. Believers, fellow Muslims. This is from chapter 2, verse 178. Retaliation is decreed for you in bloodshed. Retaliate, kill with blood. The opposite of what Jesus said. If somebody slapped you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Not retaliation. Prayer, forgiveness, suffering, sharing the gospel. Out of the Quran, chapter 4, verse 89. Quote, seize them. These are your enemies. These are people who don't agree with you. These are people who don't submit to Islam or Muhammad or Allah. Seize them. Arrest them. Put them to death wherever you find them. This is what Muslims are supposed to be reading and memorizing today. When I taught that 12-week course on Islam about five years ago, 12 weeks, the last session, all I had was I had two former Muslims come up and just give their testimony. One, he's a pastor in Sunnyvale. At the Persian Christian Church. Born and raised as a Muslim. Came to Christ. Wonderful testimony. Spoke for 30 minutes. After him, this woman got up. Born and raised in Tehran, Iran. Muslim for 25 years of her life. Moved here to America. Became a Christian. And gave her testimony. It was powerful. And they attest to everything I'm sharing here. This was from them. They lived it. They believed it. I said, have you ever read the Quran to this woman? She's Persian. She, her native language was not Arabic, which is what the Quran is originally written in. And if you're a Muslim, you're supposed to memorize the Quran in Arabic and just simply recite it. It's not a book to be studied. You simply recite it. It's called Quran means the recitation. I said, have you ever read the Quran? She said, I've memorized it. Wow. So what did you think of it? She said, I don't, I didn't ever knew what it meant. I didn't speak Arabic. That was not her native language. So she memorized the Quran in a foreign language in Arabic and recited it for 20 years and never knew what it meant. She's reciting these war verses to kill and she doesn't even realize what she's saying. Wow. Another verse out of the Quran, chapter 9, verse 123. Believers make uh, war on infidels. Infidels are unbelievers. Infidels are people who reject the gospel. That's not a gospel. Who reject the beliefs of Islam. Make war on the infidels who dwell around you. And by the way, those that surrounded Muhammad when he wrote this over in South uh, Saudi Arabia and Medina and Mecca were Jews and some skeptical polytheists and some quasi-Christians. That's who he's talking about. They thought his religion was weird. Quran chapter 47 verse 4. When you meet the unbelievers in the battlefield, strike off their heads. You know what that means? Cut off their head with the sword. What religion today in our sophisticated era of warfare is cutting people's heads off with a sword? I can only think of one. It's Islam. You can go on the internet and check it out. Why do they do that? What about lethal injections? They're painless. Because it is mandated in, in, in their scripture in the Quran. And then finally, Quran chapter 3, 141. Annihilate the infidels. Islam is a totalitarian theocracy. Point number two, Islam is the avowed enemy of Israel and Christianity. As prophesied in Scripture, as we've already looked at some of the Scriptures there in Genesis, as taught by Islam formally and as revealed in 1,400 years of history and even current events if you're paying attention and honest and discerning. Islam is the avowed enemy of Israel who God promised to bless and Christianity. 
already read Genesis. Ezekiel chapter 38 is a prophecy about the future, the end times. We know that because just by the context. If you read Ezekiel 38, it says in the end times, in the latter years. It hasn't happened yet. You read the details that hasn't happened yet in Ezekiel 38. It's a prophecy about the future. When all these nations surrounding Israel are going to gather on the nation of Israel. They are the enemies of Israel. And it names about seven nations in Ezekiel 38. Every single one of them today is a Muslim nation in the proximity of Israel. Coincidental? I don't know. But it is interesting. And here's what Ezekiel, here's a summary of Ezekiel 38. God talking to the enemies of Israel. Persia, that is Iran. Modern day Iran. Persia, hey, Ethiopia. Hey, Libya to the north. Many people, and many peoples with you, all of your neighbors who hate Israel. That is the common denominator. In the latter years, we know its future. You devise an evil plan. What is it to overthrow the nation of Israel? You will come up against my people, Israel, the people of God. In reflection of the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. Like a cloud to cover the land, it will come about in the last days and then God is going to stand up for His people. He's going to protect them. But it's just going to be a massive slaughter. It's in the future. It's certain. It's going to happen. Islam is here to stay. And then finally, how does world history end? Revelation 16, 12. It ends during the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, before Christ's second coming, with war, judgment, rebellion. And one of the common denominators, common denominators is a worldwide hatred of the Jews. Many of these Jews will put faith in Jesus Christ at the time. So Revelation 16 talks about this and 17 uh, at the great river, the Euphrates over, which is modern day Iraq. Its water will be dried up so that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. Today, these are Islamic nations. Pretty much without exception for the war of the great day of God, the war of the great day of God, Babylon, the great, the word I I would contest that the word Babylon, every time it exists in the entire Bible, it means literally historical, geographical Babylon, as we know it over where Iraq is, for the exception of one where in the book of Revelation, it says mystery Babylon. So it's talking about a real place. That's where it's going to happen. What about these people? who are going to come upon Israel. Well, they're drunk with the blood of the saints. They are bloodthirsty. They are murderous. And the book of Revelation says they use swords to chop off the head of believers and Jews. What's going on today? It was predicted in Revelation. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel 38, verse 4, predicted and said to God's enemies who are going to surround and attack Israel, it says they will be wielding swords. Wow. Ezekiel 38, verse 4. It's amazing. So this is predicted in Scripture. Uh, that Islam is the avowed enemy of Israel and Christianity is also formally taught by Islam. I could read the Hadiths, which are prophetic sayings from Muhammad himself, but I reserved uh, my content from just strictly the Quran. And here's the context. Quran chapter 5, verse 56 says, O believers, O Muslims, O followers of Allah, take not those who were given to the book. People of the book and the Quran are Jews and Christians. Take not those who were given to the book as friends. Do not even befriend them. Quran chapter 9, verse 29. As a matter of fact, it says, don't just befriend them. It says, fight against them. It's talking about Jews and Christians. Quran chapter 3, 151 and 52. If you die through jihad, through holy war, through trying to kill God, Allah's enemies, 
If you die unto Allah, shall you unto Allah shall you be gathered? The only guarantee you can get into heaven, by the way, through Islam, is if you die in warfare on the behalf of Allah through jihad. That is the only certainty you have to get into the presence of Allah after you die. It's the only one way to get sin forgiven is to die on behalf of Allah by killing an unbeliever. It's in the Quran. And the practice goes on even today. Islam is the avowed enemy of Israel and Christianity. And I just put as revealed in history, 1400 years of history. There's so many books, too many books. Just do your own research. Just two quotes from representative Muslims in our day, in our generation, Yasser Arafat, who was a terrorist for 51 years, who was responsible for the death of 11 innocent Olympic Israeli athletes in Munich in 1972, spearheaded that massacre, 1972, a bloody terrorist for 51 years, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1994. Amazing. Here's what he said. Peace for us means the destruction of Israel. Quote, said it a thousand times. Ayatollah Khomeini, representative of Iran, when I was growing up, the, he says this, quote, the purest joy in Islam is to kill and be killed for Allah. End quote. Number three, the Quran plagiarizes and distorts the Bible. There's a zillion examples. Just give you a couple. Uh, the Quran mentions the name or it mentions Jesus 97 times but it calls him Esau oops Esau and that just shows you the heretical thinking that influenced Muhammad he was talking to the wrong Jews who denied Jesus and they gave him the name Esau and so Muhammad called Jesus Esau and he records Jesus name as Esau or Isa 97 times in the Quran that's wrong that's a distortion of Jesus's name you can't distort Jesus's name because Jesus's name was deliberately given when he was born by the angel. He shall name be named Jesus. God saves. Uh, and then there's all kinds of other blunders and errors, uh, distortions, plagiarism. There's the Gospel of Thomas finds its way in there and the Gospel of Barnabas and all this apocryphal literature and Jewish fables and myths. They're just strewn all over the place. And then uh, Scripture here and there, 27 times the Exodus event is mentioned, uh, but it's distorted as well all throughout the Quran. Uh, for example, in the Quran, chapter 37, Abraham supposedly sacrifices Ishmael. We know that he sacrificed Isaac. That's wrong. Uh, in the Quran, chapter 19, it's talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. It calls her Miriam. It says that Miriam is the... Or no, it says that Mary is the sister of Aaron. That's what it does. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the sister of Aaron when Aaron's sister was Miriam. So that's a major mistake. Uh, and then in the Quran, chapter 5, verse 110, this is quoting from uh, a rejected pseudepigraphal writing from the 2nd century, 3rd century, Gospel of Thomas. Uh, quote, O Jesus, how thou didst shape of clay as it were the likeness of a bird. So it was obviously got that from the Gospel of Thomas that teaches that when Jesus was a little kid, for playtime he'd play in the mud and he'd make things out of mud and he made a pigeon out of mud and he blew on it and it turned into a bird and flew away. So I could go on and on how the Bible is abused and distorted in the Quran. And I just give you this verse. Uh, Proverbs 35 and 6 says this, every word of God is pure. Every word of God. The Scripture is pure. God's given us everything we need to know. It's pure. Every word of God is pure. Do not add to His words. That's what the Quran is. It's an addition to the Bible. We don't need it. Do not add to His words lest God reprove you and you be proved a liar. Number five, Islam rejects the Trinity and the deity of Christ. 
the Quran says this. Lo, the likeness of Jesus with Adam is as the likeness of Adam. What that means is Jesus was no different than Adam. Jesus was created. He was created. He was a created being just like Adam was. That's wrong. The Bible says Jesus is eternal. He is the creator. And he's just like Adam. He's no different than Adam. And the Bible says, yeah, he is different from Adam. He is God in a body. But the Quran goes on to say that Allah created Jesus out of dust. And then he said to him, be or exist. And he was. So the Quran says that Jesus is a created being. It denies who Jesus is, his deity, the fact that he is eternal, that Jesus himself is the creator. He is God. He is to be worshipped. They reject all of that. As a matter of fact, the, the greatest blasphemy in Islam is to attribute to Jesus the attributes of God. That is the single greatest blasphemy according to Islam. To give Jesus honor, praise, worship, prayer. Uh, the Quran, chapter 5, verse 119, says this, O Jesus, Son of Mary, didst thou say unto mankind, Take me and my mother for two gods besides Allah? It's a rhetorical question. So the Quran rejects the notion. What it's getting at here, it's, it, uh, Muhammad misunderstood the Trinity. He thought the Trinity, he knew that Christians believed in the Trinity, but he didn't know what that meant. But what he thought it was is that Christians believed that God the Father was God and that Jesus was God and that Mary was God. That's what Muhammad thought the Trinity was. So in this verse, he is rejecting his understanding of the Trinity. But he rejected the Trinity, and today if you talk to a Muslim, they reject the idea of the Trinity as blasphemy. So then when you're sharing the Gospel with a Muslim, then what should you share with them? I say, then tell them about the Trinity. Well, that'll, they'll think it's blasphemy, but it's the nature of who God is. It is God the Creator, God the Savior. They have got to understand properly who God is. Well, they might get mad. Yeah, I know. Unbelievers do that sometimes. They got mad at Jesus. They killed him. They got mad at Paul. They killed him. They got mad at Peter. They killed him. They got mad at all the apostles. They killed him. You were called to suffer, Christian, for his sake. But the Bible clearly affirms the Trinity, that Jesus is eternal. He is God. He created all things. He is to be worshipped alongside God the Father, as is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, is eternal God. We've taught on it extensively, and that's why Isaiah 6.3 says of Yahweh, Yahweh the one God, holy, holy, holy are you. That's the Trinity. Number five, Islam rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the worst thing of all right here. You could talk about Muhammad's 15 wives and all the murders he did and whatever else. That pales in comparison to point number five. Muhammad, the Quran and Islam rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone who rejects, undermines and distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be eternally condemned. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. The Quran, chapter 4, verse 157. Esau, they're talking about Jesus. Esau, son of Mary, Allah's messenger or prophet. They slew him not, nor crucified. There it is. It is that is a blatant rejection of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die. Yet Paul said, may I never boast in anything save the cross of Jesus Christ, who died for my sins and saved my soul. Paul put his life on the line for that truth and got his head cut off to preserve that truth. And yet the Quran tells us Jesus didn't die. He was not crucified, but it appeared so unto them. 
who believe that Jesus was crucified on a cross. You are deluded. And lo, those who disagree concerning it are in doubt thereof. They have no knowledge thereof. Save pursuit of conjecture. This is rather insulting, isn't it? They slew him not for certain. Wow. I mean, I just think about the Apostle Paul and the Bible's view of the gospel. It's the only way a person can be saved. It's the only way you can have your sins forgiven. It's the only way you can be adopted into the family of God. It's the only way you can live forever with God in the family of God. It's the only hope for mankind. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. That is the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. Even a Muslim. Number six, Muhammad was a false prophet. Wow, you're bold, Pastor Cliff. Uh, I don't think so. I'm just speaking truth. Well, ten years from now, you might go to jail for saying that. That's very possible. Then I'll have a great prison ministry. Lord willing. Muhammad was a false prophet. Boy, that's not very nice, Pastor Cliff. Well, I'm, I'm just doing this based on what the Bible says. If you, don't, if you think I'm not nice, for your devotions today, read 2 Peter. Then for your devotions on Monday, read Jude. And for your devotions on Tuesday, read Matthew 23. And I could keep going. Where the apostle and Jesus himself and God himself use stronger language than I do regarding a false prophet. As a matter of fact, if you read Deuteronomy 13, it says if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes into your midst and says, whoa, I'm a prophet. Yay, I'm a prophet. And they even do a miracle. They even do a miracle, yet have false doctrine. Do not believe him. Deuteronomy 13. And that false prophet was to be stoned to death. That's pretty strong. But that's what God said. He was a false prophet. Uh, here's just one false prophecy. One false... Te- I mean, I could have put a, a bunch in here. Didn't have time. Quran chapter 4, verse 176. The reason I put this one is because it is in such stark contrast to Jesus Christ, His teaching, the way He dealt with human beings and especially women. No one elevated the dignity and the status of women more than Jesus Christ Himself. No one. I just think of Galatians 3... 28, that came from Jesus who told Paul, there is neither male nor female. We are all one in Jesus Christ. Genesis 1, 26 and 28 says that God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. In 1 Corinthians 7, where it talks about marriage, it says there is to be mutual, total respect between husband and wife. 1 Peter 3 commands husbands to elevate their wives Treating them like fine china. Ephesians chapter 5 commands husbands to nurture and care for their wife. The greatest of care, the greatest of love. All the wives are elbowing their I mean, husbands. Preach it, preacher. So in light of that, biblical background on how we should treat wives and women, the Quran says this, chapter 4, verse 176, Men, husbands, literally, are in charge of women. Husbands, don't be elbowing your wife here. This is from the Quran. 
Men are in charge of women. And it's interesting. Men, the husbands are in charge of their wives is the context. And I, I didn't quote the whole verse. It's worse than what you see here. As for those wives, by the way, in the Quran it says, if you're a man, you can have up to four wives. A wife, she can only have one husband. But in the Quran, now, Muhammad himself had 15. It's not fair, but he's the prophet. He gets more. Men are in charge of women as far as those uh, from whom you fear. Okay, husband, so if you've got a wife or more and you fear that one of them or all of them are in rebellion or on the brink of rebellion, here's what you do. You scourge them. You discipline them. You rebuke them. And if necessary, you scourge You beat them. That's what the Quran says. Wow. Anyway... One of the marks of a true apostle and prophet in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is you had to have been called by God and you had to have been able to do a miracle. Signs, wonders, and mighty deeds was the sign of an apostle. There is not one recorded miracle that Muhammad ever did. That's why the Jews who surrounded him critiqued him. Show us your miracle, prophet. Couldn't do it. False prophet. Number seven. So, and again, in one sense, you know, we need to be very discerning, uncompromising on evaluating the religion of Islam, keeping in mind it is the doctrines of demons, separating that and understanding the individual human beings, every human being made in the image of God, who we need to have a heart for and compassion for and love for. How do you witness to a Muslim the same way you witness to anybody else that doesn't know Jesus Christ personally? Maybe there's somebody at GBF. Who doesn't know Jesus Christ personally? You witness to all of them the same way. You give them the simple, pure, lovely, beautiful gospel. You become a good testimony. You love them and you pray on their behalf and you watch God work in their life. That's how you witness to a Muslim. And you focus on Jesus Christ, who He is, who He truly is, that He is the God-man, that He is the Creator, that He deserves, He demands our loyalty, worship, and honor. And you emphasize His work, that He willingly came down here as the God-man, lived the perfect life, was totally sinless, went to the cross, died, was crucified willingly, and during His crucifixion, absorbed the wrath of the Father for the sin of the world. Born, or was buried, three days later, rose again, triumphantly from the dead. Ascended into heaven, reigns on high as Lord of lords, calling sinners to Himself to give them forgiveness and eternal life. The loving, gracious Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you witness to a Muslim and a Mooney and a Methodist and your mom if she's not saved. It's all the same. This is the glorious, saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And with that, I want to close with this verse. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Let's read it. The Apostle Paul declares, uh, Acts 17, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance throughout all of Old Testament history. There's now more accountability because there's more information. And Jesus has done His work and the whole world needs to know it. And that He died, He rose again, He's ascended on high. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now, God is now presently declaring to all men, or to men, that all everywhere should repent. Everyone everywhere should repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. It's a universal call. 
Verse 31, because he is fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that is Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. The glorious, risen Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. If everybody could stand where you are, and I want to close with this Scripture reading at the end of this sermon here. And this just came to me uh, the last minute. This wonderful passage out of Revelation chapter 5 where it, it describes Jesus as a lamb, which means He's the sacrifice for sin for the world. And He is up in heaven. And He is side by side with God the Father, which means they are equal. And this is a vision of heaven that John the Apostle had. And in heaven, in glory, there are myriads and myriads of angels. It means there are zillions and zillions of angels. There are, there are believers there, human beings who are glorified there, up there. Uh, all these creatures that God has made in heaven. And here's the imagery. Uh, and they're around the throne of God. And, around, and at the center of the throne of God that everybody is encircling is Jesus the Lamb and God the Father. And in Revelation 5, verse 9, it says this. They sang a new song. This was worship. Worthy art thou to take... Worthy art thou, you! That's referring to Jesus. To take the book from the Father and to break its seals. For you were slain. You purchased... For God the Father with your blood at the cross from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth with Christ. And I looked, said John the Apostle, and I heard the voice of many angels up in heaven around the throne and the living creatures were around the throne and the elders, those are human beings around the throne. Or human-like creatures. And the number of them was myriads of myriads. It was countless. Thousands upon thousands. And they were saying with a loud voice in unison, Worthy is the Lamb. This is ascribing worship to Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard them saying, to him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, that is Jesus, be blessing, honor, glory, dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down, and they worshipped God the Father and Jesus Christ Himself. Amen? Amen? Amen. With that, let me go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we do thank You for the Lord's Day. Thank You for the opportunity to examine such an important issue, God, but we don't do it blindly we do it with the guide and the light of the truth of your word thank you so much for that lord and the help of the indwelling holy spirit and help us have the proper balance to be discerning yet loving with the gospel compassionate desiring that none would perish but all would come to believe in jesus christ because we know that is your heart's desire as well father we thank you we love you we commit this day to you we pray in christ's name amen Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.